1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jonathan Cortez, the producer and host of today's episode. And today we'll be talking with Professor Nicole Widote hernandez about her recently released book, Archiving Mexican Masculinities in Diaspora, published by Duke University Press in 2021. Dr. Nicole Widotti-Hernandez is currently a professor of English at Emory University, She was a faculty member at the University of Texas at Austin from 2012 to 2019 and the inaugural chair of the Department of Mexican-American and Latina Latino Studies. She started her academic career at the University of Arizona from from 2003 to 2011. Her book, titled Unspeakable Violence, Mapping U.S. and Mexican National Imaginaries, also by Duke University Press, published in 2011, was a finalist for the 2012 Berkshire Women's History First Book Prize and won the MLA Chicana Chicano and Latina Latino Prize in Literary and Cultural Studies for 2012. She has published in journals such as Women's Studies International Forum, English Language Notes, Social Text, American Quarterly, Cultural Dynamics, Feminist Formations, The Latin Americanist, and Latino Studies. For her article, Dora the Explorer, Constructing Latinidades and the Politics of Global Citizenship is one of the most downloaded articles in the history of the journal. She is also the co-editor of Radical History Review, special issue number one, two, three, entitled Sexing Empire. As as a public intellectual, Professor Guitoti Hernandez has written numerous articles for for the feminist magazine, Miz, covering such topics as immigration, reproductive rights, and the DREAM Act. She also sits on the National Advisory Council for Miz and is currently on the National Advisory Council for Freedom University in Athens, Georgia. Her second book, which we will be discussing today, entitled Archiving Mexican Masculinities in Diaspora, was published in June 2021 and actively mentors a graduate uh, and rather, uh, Nicole actively mentors graduate and undergraduate students in her areas of research. Nicole, thank you so much for being on air with us today and welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. So I was wondering if we could begin the interview... Uh, by you telling us a bit about yourself. Perhaps tell us a bit about where you grew up, where you went to school, who you worked with in graduate school, you know, what were your, who were you inspired by uh, and how you came to be interested in the topic of Mexican, Mexican masculinities, you know, queer and feminist theories, uh, and overall uh, the approach to the book we will be talking about today.
0: Sure. Um, well, I am a native of Salinas, California. Um, My name is reflective of my racial ethnic background. My father is Italian American. My mother is Mexican American. And we were one of the only families where my parents were mixed race in my community. It's a very segregated place uh, with the Anglo-Americans with wealth living on the south side um, and the poorest of the poor living on the east side and the moderate middle class living on the North side, which is where I grew up. Um, and it's an interesting place because uh, at the time, the Fort military base was still open. And so there were lots of Filipinos and African-Americans that had historically been coming into the place, uh, either through... Um, agricultural labor or through the military base. And so I grew up in a very multicultural part of a very segregated city, which is historically brown and white and continues to be. Um, I'm a community college graduate, which a lot of people don't know. Um, And so like so many Latinx people, I uh, did not have proper counseling and was not encouraged to think about going to college and as a result went to community college, which was great. My mentor was a Choctaw Seminole woman named Lucinda Mooney, and she is the one that encouraged me to pursue research uh, as part of kind of my life trajectory. And I ended up going to UC Santa Cruz where I studied literature, but in a very interdisciplinary kind of way. And so history was a very much a part of that education and Strangely enough, I started off wanting to do Shakespeare because I love Shakespeare's plays. Um, my mentor is one of five African-Americanists at the time who who did Shakespeare, Dr. Margot Hendricks. Uh, she's since retired and she writes Black romance novels, but about the Elizabethan period, which is pretty awesome. You can find her on Twitter. Yeah, it is very cool. Um, but I had a very... A racist professor who questioned whether or not English was my first language. And English is my first language. I did not grow up in a bilingual household. We spoke English. Um, My grandparents on my mom's side spoke Spanish. My grandfather on the Italian side spoke five languages because he worked in agriculture. And so he spoke, he was Swiss Italian. So I spoke Swiss, English, Spanish, a little bit of Portuguese, um, and a little bit of Greek because of the people that he was working with. but so this question about whether or not I knew English could write in English just really made me see that I was going to be undermined if I continued to try and work in British literary and cultural studies. And so, and also, too, I think part of the problem was is that I wanted to study race in that context. And in the 1990s, people were not interested in that because they were purists. It was about text and form and not about race and culture. Um, So I gravitated towards American literature and history and took most of my classes with uh, people in the American Studies Department uh, at UC Santa Cruz and was lucky enough to be admitted to the McNair program and had a mentor, did a research project. And then I did a research program at the University of Chicago the summer before I graduated and ended up going to Cornell for graduate school. Uh, which was a real shock uh, because I had lived in these very racially integrated communities, at least on the surface. Um, I think the class politics would suggest something else. Um, But Ithaca is very segregated. It's very black and white. There's, you know, this really derogatory way that people talk about the city of Ithaca, which is the townies, the people who live in town, right? The working class, they live below the hill. And then, The people with money linked to the institution live on the hill, Um, and because it was an Ivy League institution, and I um, I come from working class background, it was just a complete culture and uh, and class shock, um, if you will. But it was so well resourced, and I took this wonderful class on African American women's history and literature taught by Lois Brown, uh, where we did archival research, and I was hooked. Um, I love working with documents because of that class. I even went to Boston as a graduate student to try and trace down some of the people that I was researching for her class. And once that happened, it just really, um, inspired my intellectual trajectory. And, you know, at Cornell, when I went, no one was doing Latinx studies. So I basically took all of my classes in black studies, which, has been a real advantage, I think, because it allows me to talk about racial formation across discipline. Um, And then until Maria Cristina Garcia and Mary Pat Brady were hired in 2000, the Latino studies students, we were kind of (laughs) D.Y.I. We, uh, you know, you make do with what you have. And so we have these tremendous monetary resources, but not necessarily the people to work with. And so in that kind of environment you really become a self-starter and I think that that has driven my work ethic ever you know ever since that moment and then when Maria Cristina Garcia and Mary Pat Brady were hired uh, there was a really clear sense of direction about you know locating myself within Latino studies. Um, I I was the first person to get a graduate certificate in Latino studies from Cornell when I graduated which was really cool and i think you know it's important noting and we also were hardcore activists for latino studies and we had a cross racial coalition that pushed the institution to grow the program and hire faculty and so you know i credit that activism in that very isolated place with shaping my commitment to the field um and my commitment to my peers and and my junior colleagues
1: hmm. I, I I love that. I feel like I, I I didn't know any of this about you, and it makes so much sense now. <laughs> under like having known you now for about ten years, um, so so I'm curious now about so in terms of archiving Mexican masculinities and diaspora, how does that early work? You know, working with archives and Black Studies classes, working with you know other students in Latino studies at Cornell. Um, how does it did it at all impact how you looked at this book or, or, or in transitioning between your first and second book?
0: Yeah, um so I tend to be a person who does projects out of frustration um, I don't like what I see or what I see doesn't make sense like what I always say to myself es que no cuadra like it doesn't square up um and I tend to be the type of scholar that wants to intervene in well-trodden territory because I think the nuance about gender, sexuality, and race is underdeveloped and anemic. And so my first book was about um, right anti-indigenous violence and how that was levied by Mexicans on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border to create a particular kind of citizenship and belonging that even still was tenuous um and i did that because i was really exhausted with the romance of mestizaje and i had come across all these argument uh sorry archival documents at the university of arizona of elite mexicans um spearheading raids against their native neighbors when they themselves were saying that they were the descendants of Apache Tonotam and Yaqui peoples, right? And so it's like we can be Indian and that's cool, but then we're also gonna kill Indians because we're not like them. And so that book came out of a frustration. But what happened is that while I was finishing up that first book, and I had a Fulbright in Mexico City to do that, I was working in the the Argene, the Archivo General de la Nacion in Mexico City. Um And I started seeing all these documents about the convergence of Yaqui sort of protesting of state intervention and their genocide by the Porfiriato and the beginnings of the Flores Magons and the Partido Liberal Mexicano being um, surveilled and how those kinds of surveillance overlapped really caught my attention. And then I started Looking and thinking about, and I said this in the first book too, which is military documents and military correspondence are a highly masculinist and gendered discourse. But people just do military history and don't even think about gender. And one of the things that I learned from working in in that archive and in the Secretaría de Relaciones Exteriores, right, which is basically the State Department for Mexico, um, is that. We have to take into account gender, um, because that is how states operate. Um, And in that regard, I thought, okay, well, I can't write about this now in this first book, because I don't want to short shrift the conversation about anti-Indigenous violence and mestizo uh, state formation. So I want to do the second book on masculinity, because... Um, all of the information about the Partido Liberal Mexicano and all of the information about the Bracero program is highly heteronormative and gender normative in the way that it talks about masculinity. Um, and what we know about both of those sort of uh, cohorts of Mexican migrants is that they were predominantly male. And especially in the case of the Bracero program, uh, men were migrating by themselves. And we cannot uh, escape the fact that the language of nationalism put forward by the PLM is highly homoerotic, highly emotive in the way that it calls for brotherhood. And we have an all male living situation in communities where breasts are brought in together and women are not there that also produces its own homosocial and homoerotic potential. And so my work has really been about trying to push back on normalized narratives and preconceived notions of things like mestizaje or masculinity, and how if we take a deep dive into the materials and the documents, and pay close attention to concepts like family, uh, desire, uh, community formation, uh, and and uh, you know sort of. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Masculinity, sorry, I should have been able to say that because that's what the whole book is about. Um, we can then begin to understand how the context of migration allows Mexican nationals to change the way they practice gender and sexuality outside of Mexico. Um, and also too, the thing that inspired me to write the second half of the book about the Bracero program is that I grew up in the heart of the Bracero program. And I talk about this in the epilogue of the book, which is I knew nothing about the history until I went to Ithaca, New York, which is a disgrace, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, and so it just also felt like, just like with the first book, there's a social justice component about getting these stories out um, because homo homonationalism, homoeroticism, uh, male compatriotship in diaspora is often also tinged with misogyny. Um, and that's another part of what the second book tries to do is talk about that, that those undercurrents, if you will, the underbelly as I think I use the word in the intro of the book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I there's, thank you so much. That was, an, first of all, an amazing transition into the book, <laughs> but, but I think, but I think so many, like, so you, uh, towards the end you mentioned you know you, you grew up in Salinas didn't know much about the Braceros program it wasn't until you went to Ithaca and I loved that the that especially the second or well, both parts of the book but the second part of the book especially about Salinas wasn't just you know a recovery history it wasn't just a history of the Braceros in Salinas but it was a really critical understanding of um understanding the emotive and affective lives of the Braceros through the Nadel photographs and was really trying to to uproot and shift how we look and how we understand the Bracero program because in the introduction, you know, you say that you came into you, you came in contact with the constructive the constructed archive, right? Whether it was constructed by Enrique in the case of PLM history or by Nadell and the state in the case of the history, right? Whether it was by the state or by individuals, you write, quote, yet I saw something else that was harder to put into words, end quote. Right. And I think you've explained that so well is that is that you write out of frustration you write out of trying to solve something that you don't that feels that doesn't feel right um and I and I love that idea and it's because like in the introduction again you argue that intimacy desire and personal attachment all can tell us something more about the intimate lives of these Mexican men than state-sponsored archives ever could Um, and I think that that is such uh an important concept to take from the book that that we need deeper readings, we need deeper understandings, and we need to, to break apart sort of state-sponsored and, and curated and construction, constructed ideas of, of masculinity and Mexican migration into the United States. Um, so thank you for that. <laughs> so So now the question for me is, how did these two stories come into contact with each other, right? Like, what, what were you researching PLM first and then the Bracero program? Or was it the question about masculinity that drove you to these two historical, um, historical moments?
0: Sure. So as I mentioned, I came across a lot of the material for the part on the PLM in finishing my first book. But I actually started writing the part on the Bracero program first um, because I really needed the time to spend with the photographs. And, you know, one of the things that I say in the interim, thank you for so eloquently restating um, my idea of emotion and intimacy as historical processes, or rather history in the making, and that we have to consider people's intimate lives as part of how they become historical subjects and actors. And that's for me, I think, what was really disturbing about the Bracero photographs and the way that they've been historically talked about, which is their evidence of suffering. Right. And then, but when we look at the actual construction of the archive, we learn that um, Evelyn Wolfden Adele actually wanted to sell a screenplay based on the photographs that her husband took and, and sort of lionize her husband as a hero, a national hero which, you know, I think in some context he could be. But when I started looking at these Photoshop series of, you know, six different shots of the same man posing over a lettuce box, which I talk about extensively, I, I believe in chapter 11 and, or, you know, six sequence shots of men laying in close proximity to each other in a bunkhouse, six or seven shots of him eliciting smiles from young men in a culture where you're not taught to smile. Um, six or seven sequence shots in a shower um, where no one else is around. Those really raise questions for me. I think the fumigation pictures, the de- the data processing centers, the the bus trips from Mexicali and from Empalme, Sonora, into California, Arizona, and Texas, really important, right? Because they do show us the exploitation. But I also was struck by the fact that no one wanted to talk about The proximity of Nadell to Braceros, the intimacy that he captured in these images, the relationship he had to build with these subjects in order to take the pictures, and then their bodily gesture or positioning. And that idea of the gestural as historical trace or ephemera comes from performance studies. And so how can we read the body, the positioning of the body as trace, and then put that in conversation with the local public dialogue in the Salinas Valley about how braceros are being seen as social sexual subjects, as consumers, um, and also the way that they're being legislated against, uh, you know, through exclusion, through segregation in labor camps, um, through being seen as a vice population. And, and so that's how the pieces kind of fell together, which is this, the pictures didn't match up with the national narrative. And so I really spent a lot of time with the photographs and then did all the policy and contextual research after the fact. Um, in other words, the images from the Dell collection drive the story, um, which I think is important. So instead of trying to impose a narrative of lionized heteronormative masculinity. I was interested in, well, what are the other ways and forms that we can see through these images and through legislation and through local policy and ordinances and newspapers in the way that the community, a predominantly Mexican community, is receiving Mexican nationals, participating racism in racism against their own people because they're trying to establish a middle-class position in a city that's been historically white, um and and then right kind of parse out what the emotions and attachments whether they're hatred or desire or exclusion what do those mean more broadly um and then i came back to the plm documents um and what i found fascinating about those was just the state obsession with clamping down on the plm and the way that there were competing narratives of masculinity between what the state Mexican state was constructing and the U.S. state was constructing versus what the PLM was saying about themselves. But the one place where everything converged was in this Baroque, dense, writing style about gender and nation, love of country, love of fellow man or um, co-legionary, co-regionario, as as the texts say, through both personal correspondence and the Newspaper Generacion*, as well as, um, you know, federal surveillance documents. But when I started actually looking at the Flores Magón archive that's housed at El Hijo de Auisote, it is filled with personal letters. And the letters that get talked about are the letters to comrades and brothers in arms, you know, socialism, anarchism, etc. But there are all these letters between Enrique and his family, Enrique and his intimate partners, his children, his brother, his mother, Um, and no one had done anything with those. And I thought, well, if PLM exiles are able to to construct community through nationalism and brotherhood, there are also intimacies and ties and a kind of eroticism attached to that love of the nation and love of country and countryman. Um, but that is also buttressed by their life at home and their intimate lives. Um, and I think that's really how the two pieces connect together is that we see a continuum of the way that Mexican nationals in the United States build community. You know, the, uh, PLM members were able to integrate themselves into a predominantly Mexican immigrant population in Los Angeles in the teens and twenties, and also into the labor movement. And I think that that helped facilitate their sense of belonging, but also the sense of alienation and incarceration that they experienced. But also with the by the time we get to the Bracero program in the forties and fifties, we have an established Mexican middle class, Mexican American middle class, native born Mexicans in the United States that see themselves as completely different. And so the intimacy is created amongst and between Braceros, but not with people of the same ethnicity in the places where they're landing. And then the other connection is that Enrique Flores Magón in particular, whose archive I use as the backbone of the first half of the book, sees a kinship, and publicly comments on the terrible conditions and lack of freedoms that Bracero's experienced in the United States in the same way that he and his other co-religionaries uh, in the PLM experienced in the United States in the teens and twenties. Mm.
1: So you even have Enrique in the forties or in the fifties, forties and fifties, writing about these connections, writing about Um, similarities between his experience early on in the 20th century and the treatment of recettos in the 50s.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And he has, I mean, you know, he goes from being a pariah uh, to the Porfiriato to returning to Mexico in 1928 and being, you know, an arbiter of revolutionary history. And so he has these two columns in El Nacional, which is the newspaper of the Secretaria de Gobernación, and then in Todo el el, uh, La Mejor Revista de México, Uh, which is a popular uh, magazine that you buy and he writes column every week and so he either reminisces about when the plm was in the united states to tell people the history of the organization or he writes about current events and so he basically has one article where he talks about how braceros are the equivalent of um, enslaved africans which, you know, I, I take issue with because I think that's a false equivalency, but I see what he's trying to do rhetorically, which is to say that our, our brethren are in chains through these um, unfair labor contracts that exploit them. Uh, and we can't just turn a blind eye also to their racialization and then talks about his own experience of racism in the United States, sort of linking these three distinct historical positions. Obviously, he doesn't address the question of Blackness versus Mexicanidad and mestizones, but I do think that the equivalency there, he's trying to make an argument about race in the United States and exploitation that's different than race and exploitation in Mexico through labor, right? Right.
1: Wow. Well, so so can you talk, so maybe switching to the first part of the book, as you say, using Enrique Flores Magón's story as the backbone for the first part, can you talk, maybe starting with, his his authority over his own historical narrative over his own archive over his own like i i'm so i maybe we can talk about this through the erasure of paula Caromona um in in the chapters that you talk about um her story and and the, the the betrayal and all of that kind of thing so maybe talking about enrique's construction of his own narrative and history uh and maybe wrapping that up into um, his marriage and relationship with Paula. With
0: yeah, sure. And I will say that the Paula Carmona chapter is probably my favorite chapter in the entire book. Yeah, that one. And I would say the one uh, called Hip Forward. Those are my two favorites. Um, so Enrique's archive is really interesting because when I started to look for and hear about the, the first wife, Paula Carmona, it was in tiny little snippets. And then I started reading in the secondary literature, and people would say she died. But then I read this article that Enrique wrote after he got out of prison in, in um 1914 called Los Huérfanos. And it's basically an allegory about the children that he gave up when he and Carmona split um in 19 uh 1914 while he was still in prison. But what I realized was that There was way more to the story on the surface that Paula Carbona wasn't dead. Um, In fact, she was excommunicated and Enrique purged the entire archive of their relationship except for one clipping. And my thinking was, how could this guy that saved greeting cards that he gave to his mother when he was five years old, birthday cards that he drew for her? when he was seven, poetry he scribbled on the back of pages when he was 10, treatises about the naming of his bicycle and making fun of the dictator when he was 19 years old. I mean, such a meticulous person who kept all their materials for decades while he was running from the law in another nation. Why was there nothing about Paula Carmona? And it was because he destroyed it. And so then I tried to track down Paula Carmona's family. And luckily I was able to get in touch with her granddaughter. Um, And the family had all these, they didn't have any of the letters because they believed that Paula also threw all of that away when Enrique abandoned her and their two children in 1914 in favor of the movement. Uh, Her father had something to do with that in that he was trying to basically commandeer, uh, direction of Regeneracion, while Enrique uh, and Ricardo Flores Magón were in McNeil Island serving a sentence for violating neutrality laws. But what I was able to do with the the Sweringen family collection, based on what Paula Carmona saved, is essentially construct a narrative of their relationship, and with all the information and I would say misinformation about who Paula Carmona really was and what she stood for and who her father was in the revolution movement um, that was really indicative of how the PLM was perfectly fine with talking about women's equality, but they were completely uncomfortable with women that defied their role as patriarchs and leaders. And they were also completely uncomfortable with women who engaged in free love practices. And that to me, all of that signaled um, that we're fine with equality until we're not fine with it, and that the way to get around that equality narrative is to talk about misogyny, betrayal as a, f- and and that betrayal uh, is a form of misogyny in practice, right? Mm-hmm. A hatred of women.
1: Yeah, yeah, be- because because when when that the the attemptive commandeering of the by Paula's father uh, in the aftermath, you talk about just a slate of like. Really like like hate articles in Regeneración and other literature of like really just saying like they are no longer a part of the junta and they should be like not trusted. And uh, so, 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 two parts. Can you talk about the transition between, you know, at one point Enrique is making these sketches of Paula and writing her letters, and you say, you, you know, on page 52, you say, you write, uh, to show affection through sketches complicated the ways that masculine revolutionary diasporic subject formations and emotional attachments were tenuous at best. This expression of emotional vulnerability was in stark contrast to what the flores Magón brothers projected through their insurgency activities. So so you go from really doing a deep dive of Enrique's affection for Paula, and then to post-betrayal there's a really stark like rejection of her and her father and even erasure of her in the history of plm how does that like what how do we make sense of that
0: yeah that's a great question and a and a great uh narrative of, of what happens because they're financially integral to the plm struggle because her father uh romulo has Uh, starts off as a distributor of the newspaper in el paso texas in 1906 and when the junta moves they move together and when enrique is in hiding in the carmona home on san fernando street in los angeles is when he makes these two sketches of paula and dedicates them to her with you know mi querida paulita my little paula right um before they're married and then after they're married and those sketches come on the heels of his participation or non-participation, because that's up for historical debate in the Las Palomas Chihuahua uh, invasion that the PLM was defeated in. And so my thinking was, how, how do you go from being all about, you know, violence and guns and armed struggle and revolution to tenderness and intimacy and really wooing a young woman to be your life partner. And I actually don't think that those two things are unrelated. I think they're very related in that both are intensive expressions of emotion. They're just in different directions. Um, And there's something very Freudian about that in the sense that love and hate are intense emotions that are not that far apart from each other on a spectrum. Right. And so the same intense emotion That is wielded to the cause that draws Enrique to, you know, be at the side of the Las Palomas Chihuahua um, failed uh, raid attempt. And then to turn around and be in hiding and be super tender and super passionate uh, and using his soul as an artist, which his father Teodoro tried to completely press. He wanted to go to art school and the father said, no, you need to go and be an accountant. And so that's what he did. Right. So there's something about the freedom of being a political agitator that allows those intensive emotions to come forth. And that I would argue that this love that is expressed for country is identical in its intensity to the love of woman or partner. And so that's how we get these two extreme expressions of emotion, which then after the betrayal with, you know, the father of Romulo trying to commandeer, a that love turns into hatred right and that hatred is a misogynist expression of exclusion and that in turn as an intensive emotion becomes part of um what i like to think of as the plm's culture of denunciation which is interesting because in mexico when you want to make a complaint against somebody they ask un denuncia you make a denouncement and this is a political form that really has a long cultural history. And so I'm writing a piece right now about uh, uh, Juana uh, Gutierrez de Mendoza, who, when she left the PLM Junta in 1906, they basically said she was a lesbian. Um, as a, and they wrote an entire page about page and a half, actually, in a four page newspaper about how vile and horrible she was and, you know, telling their side of the story. And so, you know, I don't use these words in the book, but the more I think about it, these are wounded, these are wounded people and wounded masculinities and that dialect between love and hate nation and romantic love. Those are the most extreme expressions of emotion that are not separate, but they're all intercombined.
1: Right, and and that's what makes them so easily interchangeable. That's what makes the flip of the script so so quick. So so, I think you you kind of talk about like a sleight of hand at at one point. Um, so 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 then, what happens? So maybe moving forward a little bit, because I can talk about Bala all day, but just quickly, right? What what happens? What happens with Bala in the aftermath? Because as you write on page sixty four, you say. Enrique could not support his wife or children from prison so what should Paula have done right she never you, you say earlier in the book that she never outwardly denounced her father as you know a, a as a betrayer as a whatever so she got wrapped up into that into that that argument that narrative right which then perpetuated the attacks against Romulo and Paula and and Juan who was who was another person in in the incident um so then what happens with Paula
0: so one, she's um she's just had a a baby die of fever, right? Six months before, um, just twenty one years old. She has two children under the age of four, and you know this is a young woman who's been socialized into liberal ideas and anarchism and anarchist notions of family. I mean, you just look at the names of the children. Margarita's name for the Magón's mother, Praxidius' name for Fallen Comrade, uh, Praxidius Guerrero, and Demophilo is named for right, a newspaper, but also the Greek um, god of uh, democracy and justice. And so, you know, here's a young woman who is completely socialized from the time she's a child in 1904 six when her father becomes a distributor of the plm newspaper to basically the time that she's you know 21 years old and in 1914 is completely excommunicated and she's devastated um her granddaughter says that she refused to talk about what happened um but she kept the pictures, she kept the sketches she kept the card heart cut out And so for Anita, her granddaughter, what she told me is she said, I always wanted, I would try and ask her about these things and she would remain silent, which to me indicated that she was still very wounded and deeply hurt by what happened. And so she did what any young woman would do, which is she relied on her parents. She got a job and then she ended up marrying a Japanese national, which was against the law at the time when they got married. Uh, you know, he accepted that she had two children. um, And then they proceeded to have six more children. And then her husband and the six children of half Japanese descent were interred during World War II. So she experiences another wave of loss of being separated from her spouse and her children. And what I've learned, and this is a project that I'm going to work on with with Paula's family is just to talk about the pieces of how the first set of losses, which is being completely excommunicated from a social and political structure that you've been raised in, to being separated from your children and your partner because of their race as Japanese Americans. Um, during World War II at the hands of the U.S. state. And so, but what's interesting is that one of the reasons why the PLM people hate Paula so much is because her second husband, Carl Nakashima, has ties to the Japanese royal family. He buys property in Long Beach with his fertilizer business, and they discover oil on the property. And so they become very wealthy. And so she goes from being, you know, kind of impoverished, proletarian, living day by day to working and then essentially becoming a woman with money and property and land and oil rights. Um, you know, and, and I one of the favorite things I learned about her is like she was a really smart woman with numbers. She was also a very skilled photographer and read like crazy. Um she had a ledger that tracked the production of eggs of her hens that, yeah, that is that is that 10 years long. And so she was just a meticulous record keeper. She was a financial wizard. She kept her family together and maintained that property while her husband and her children were interred. Um, so she was a very smart woman and I think it's because, and she was able to respond in that way because she faced so much adversity as a young person and as a young mother, as a result of what happened in the PLM.
1: Wow. Thank, thank you so much. I, I want to keep talking about, (laughs) you know, Paula and Teresa. I love her. There's so much more book to get through. And I I think, you know, just, just as we kind of move through the book, um, the first part of the book, I, I think. Teresa's, Teresa's, which is Enrique's second marriage, right, is incredibly important and essential to the effective history of Enrique and the PLM, right? Because as you write, it, it, it allows for a recuperation that she offered to the idealized, the idealized family and love. And I, I, I'm actually going to jump over that chapter and I want you to talk more about the chapter called bodily harm. Because I think it's it's fascinating where you talk about how you know between 1912 and 1918, while Enrique has been kind of in and out of prisons at different points, you write on page 111, you say the fiery performances of revolutionary masculinity had been replaced with the physical uh, frailty and damage. Can you talk about bodily sort of bodily sort of? Um, aging you know being through prison being separated from family like what are the effects on the body that 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 separation takes because really that's what this book is about is about how separation shifts gender expression and and gender you know relationships so I'm curious about um its embodied form in this chapter
0: yeah no I think that's a great question and so just to piggyback and start from another origin point right is is in the recuperation of of bodily integrity and masculinity through the form partnership with Teresa that then that becomes the emotional buoy for when he's in and out of prison because he's able to reclaim a heteronormative family right and I call them the foundational couple of of the PLM right in in Mexican history because it's not just that they get together but they have all he adopts her children um and then that becomes the what you know um Ana Rosas, I think, has astutely talked about the side of emotional labor in the face of loss and separation. And so the letters to the children, the letters to Teresa, are these very tender expressions of love, but also patriarchy, because even as he's telling the children that he loves them, he is also saying, don't forget to be a good girl, listen to your mother, she knows how to be you know a proper person don't turn to the looking glass because is because it is the symbol of bourgeois corruption and then when he talks to the boys it's um you know be a good young man be strong uh listen you know listen to your mother but with different gender expectations but so yeah it all in the same letter and so the letters again i think are super interesting treatises on the way that Enrique understands gender in relationship to a patriarchal structure, which is his family. And I mean, that's, what's funny about this. I mean, like not a ha ha funny, but like uh peaking interest kind of funny, which is that, you know, this is an organization that's supposed to be preaching gender equality and free love. And yet the writing is completely, you know, saturated with gender normativity. And so by the time we get to, Uh, When Enrique is reflecting um, on his multiple incarcerations, he has arthritis, he has a stomach ulcer, he has missing teeth, he's lost 60 pounds, he's not strong, and he's physically strong, and he's reflecting on the gashes to his head, the scratches on his arm, the incisions from police billy clubs on his abdomen uh the place where he was shot in the foot in las palomas the uh pain in his teeth and how he can't eat nuts and berries that his family sends to him how he can't dress in the dandy dapper style that he was so accustomed to before being in prison because he's an inmate um and so again we get an intensity of feeling in the body um that then gets externalized in these letters and they show up in these very kind of gendered ways in his communication with his children. And the other thing that I think is important to note is that before Enrique goes into prison in 1917, 1918, he and Teresa also have a spat about fidelity and domesticity and betrayal. And, Unlike with Paula, who he completely cuts off, um, I think in part, too, because of pressure from Ricardo uh, while they're in prison, um, he's forced to choose the ideal over his family. He realizes that he could potentially lose the second family with Teresa if they don't get their uh, ideas about free love straightened out in the commune that they're living in, in in Silver Lake, Edendale, um, before he goes to prison. And so one of the other things that I think is happening in these letters uh, with Teresa and his children is that they're atonement treatises about moving affective uh, registers and power in a way to help people forget what happened before. Um, but also in talking about the frailty of his body. It is a non-normative masculine gesture, but it's also an effective relationship to evoke sentiment. Um, And I talk about sentimentality, right? Which is this historic kind of concept of emotion that is used to talk about women writers in the 19th century in the United States. But this generation of Mexican writers are influenced by British romantic poets, which is why their language is so Baroque and flowery. And so, you know, in that respect, The bodily harm or the suffering that he experiences and narrates while he's incarcerated or while he's working at a nursery in La Puente, you know, lifting trees um, is very much in line with intensive emotion as well. And intensive emotion as an expression of intimacy and a way to affectively attach to people and create a sense of love and longing during separation
1: Hmm. and so so maybe to wrap up this first part right where where does the first part of your book end with Enrique with the PLM with sort of you know I think him leaving Leavenworth and and can you sort of talk to us about where the where the first part of the book ends
0: yeah so he is released from Leavenworth in 1921 and then he is deported in 1923 um and i follow them back into mexico for about 8 months after he is deported and there are two reasons for that one is the argument that is made by the plm you know consistently once they leave mexico in in 1903 is that they're going to be murdered and because it has been 5 years since the official end of the mexican revolution The nation is far more stable and syndicalism or unionism has taken hold and there's a massive socialist movement. And so when they arrive in Juarez by train, the IWW of Mexico is there and there are thousands of people there, which is why I include those pictures of the rally where they speak. And essentially Enrique and Teresa become these arbiters of the revolution and representatives of labor struggle, political struggle, critique of the state. And so Juarez becomes this big moment after he's deported of reinauguration into Mexican society as a national icon and a hero, and his family as arbiters of revolutionary history because of what they've done and experienced in the United States. And he essentially goes on a speaking tour. Um, and is hosted by labor unions and communist organizations. He's even put into prison in Puebla uh, with a Spanish uh, female anarchist um, for inciting the masses and And then what happens is that Miguel Aleman through his son, who becomes a naval officer, which is you know this is something that I want to write about later. The children basically were so exhausted by growing up in poverty that they all turned to careers and professions that allowed them to have stable middle-class lives. Um, And Enrique Jr. in particular, like when he, um, when his grandfather dies, Enrique uh, Sr., I'm sorry, when Daniel Flores Magon's grandfather dies, Enrique Sr., Enrique Jr. reads all of his letters from his father to the kids and then burns them. Because he wants to leave that part of his life behind. And so there's a very clear disconnect between the children and all the suffering that they've experienced and the lives that they want to have when they return to Mexico. So I end in 1923-1 because it is the, the formal definitive point of exile ending. But it's also the moment at which Enrique Flores Magón and Teresa Arteaga and their children are re reinaugurated into the nation state as heroes.
1: Wow. Okay. Yeah. There's, I'm reading through my notes and I have so many questions because I think these photographs are so fascinating, right? Like you talk about the expression on their faces, the expression like of them being these national heroes returning to Mexico. And then he goes on like a, a, a speaking tour. Like he goes, he starts to like write himself back into the national narrative of Mexico and, and again, starts to construct his, his legacy, his history. Um, but let's turn to the second part of the book. We're about at, we're at 52 minutes. Um, so let's turn, let's turn to the second part of the book. It's titled The Homoerotics of Abjection, The Gays and Leonard Nadell's Salinas Valley Bracero Photographs. And you, you, you spoke about this at the beginning, but I'm curious to just quickly, like how was it for you writing a history of your hometown, a, a, Bracero, a Bracero history of your hometown in some ways?
0: well it was it was completely new and eye opening because I knew so little um you know, I knew sort of the like class bifurcation stuff and citizenship bifurcation through my own family's uh middle class pretensions which weren't necessarily always true. they were born fantasy I think in truth um but i it was it was a mind blo- it was like my head was exploding because there was so much i didn't know um and for me that's i think that's why it was in some ways uh faster to write that part it just it flowed because i knew all the places i knew all the people but i didn't know how it all fit together and so it was like putting together a puzzle and going back and you know things that people would dismiss, like a city ordinance from nineteen, you know, fifty-four about the regulation of labor camps or the agricultural conference in California leading up to the, you know, National Republican Convention. These seemingly benign activities actually really inform how braceros, particularly in the Salinas Valley, were, you know, pumped in like gallons of water and seen as a you know, replaceable labor force, but then also, you know, totally rejected by the local community and completely defended um, as moral people by growers because they benefited from their cheap labor. So in that regard, it was like learning about a place I had known all my life that I knew I realized how much I didn't know.
1: And and I think as I was reading through it, I saw it as such a good case study for, you know, like really good local and regional history uh, from, from an interdisciplinary perspective, right? And I think it was because you, you get us into the story by by talking to us about Ernesto Galarza and Strangers in the Field, right? A report he wrote in 56 and then how Nadell in response wanted to write, wanted to provide a visual representation of of the report, right? And so... Nadell goes into the Salinas Valley and is, is taking photographs and you talk about his relationship, particularly in, in, in chatting with and getting to know the laborers before photographing them. Um, but what, what would you say is the canonical way that the Nadell photos have been, have been taught or have been, have been displayed, right? Because you talk a bit about that and then you sort of start to undo that a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I'm just going to talk about the iconic photo, which is of a young man carrying a short-handled hoe over his neck with a fur, uh, what was the word I'm looking for? A shearling-lined Levi's jacket and a straw hat on, uh, turned sideways looking to the camera. And so that image is about lionized masculinity and hard labor, right, which is to say we have to appreciate and value the labor and contributions that Bracero's, um have made, which is aestheticized through Nadell's photographs. And then we have the second set, which are the, um, ex- uh, the extermination or DDT spraying photographs and medical exams, um, which for me are about victimization. Look how terrible these folks were treated. And they were, there's no question about it. They were mistreated. And then there's the look at how squalid their living conditions were. Right. Again, so we have lionized men who are being victimized. They're national heroes, right? They're um, patriots in overalls. I think was the 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 word that uh, Deborah Cohen uses to describe them. And that's only a fraction of the 2,000 photographs. That's maybe 120. The rest of them are about intimate spaces and community, and relationality amongst and between the men, as well as the labor they're performing and the relationship with the photographer. And that's what I was interested in because, yeah, braceros were exploited. Braceros did live in poverty. They were paid low wages. They did work their butts off. They were, uh, you know, able-bodied men with physical strength. But they also have a social life and they have an intimate life outside. And that's what I was interested in because no one wants to talk about that.
1: Yeah, so so this is really jumping way ahead, but can you talk about um, the moment where there are um, there are vendors who have come to the labor camp and they're kind of like they've popped the trunk and there are like laborers standing around them. There are a couple photos that you talk about, uh, and it's 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 in relation to I think it's in the chapter wanting to be looked right, and in relation to how they how the braceros um, took, took care of themselves in this very homeless social space. Um, but what? Why, why is that so important? Why is that the photograph of these vendors coming into the labor camp and the braceros hovering around them to smell the cologne or to try out the razors? What does that tell us about bracero history?
0: Yeah. So one, it tells us that Anglo-American mobile vendors saw them as a market and saw them as consumers and saw them as a captive market. Because folks only went into town once a week to buy, to hacer la compra. And if they went to folks out there, they knew they were going to make sales. And we also got a sense of desire for being a consumer, right? So we see braceros enacting their desires as consumers. We see them enacting their will to want to be desired, right? So this is a society in the Salinas Valley that is essentially wholesale rejecting them, and that the only sort of points of contact are either at, at dances with other working class women or when they go into town to shop or play pool one day a week, um, they still see themselves as wanting to be desired, wanting to be looked at. And if you look at those photos really closely, some of the folks are directly engaging the camera and some of the folks are directly engaging the consumer products, right? Smelling, touching, trying, etc. And we get a very clear sense of how braceros saw themselves, which is as empowered consumers, as sexual social subjects, and as people that imagine themselves as being worthy of self-care, which is completely counter to the narrative of victimization and exploitation, which shows us that, yeah, even people can be in the most horrible of socioeconomic conditions, but self-care comes in many forms and is an expression of preservation it is an expression of desire is expression for wanting to be desired and i would say an expression of gender and sexuality whether that relationship is with other men in the camp or women or trans women outside of the camp
1: mm. and, and, so speaking more about that right throughout the second part i mean really throughout the whole book but throughout the second part you talk specifically about how Bracero migration to the United States and to the Salinas Valley really broke down gender roles um, and implemented more and really written in as a national policy, right? As the Bracero policy is male-male sociality. So why is is queer theory and a queer framework and a queer approach vital to further understanding the complexity of Mexican masculinities in diaspora?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, One, I think the government figured out that after deporting all the so right, the anarchists and early 20th century migrants escaping the revolution came to the us with their families, right. And by the time the depression rolls around, and they start deporting Mexicans in 1934, they realize that if people have families here, they're going to be less likely to stay. So one of the conditions of the rest of our program, right, is that men migrate on their own. And as a result of that, they, right, I say this, they unintentionally create a structure of homosociality, a policy, an immigration policy of homosociality. And what queer theory allows us to see is the flexibility of gender as a spectrum and the flexibility of sexuality as a spectrum. And queer theory highlights affect, which is Threaded throughout the entire book, but particularly in the Bracero chapters, um, because the affective expressions are captured in exchanges that the Nadell photographs record. So, you know, somebody said to me, well, in a reader report, Enrique Flores Magón was never penetrated. So how you can use queer theory? Well, queer theory is not about, you know, homosexual penetration. It's about gender and racial spectrums and affect at the center of analysis Um, and so I think that's why it's been so vital to my thinking, particularly for this project.
1: So, so, so the chapter that you mentioned that is your favorite, um, the hip forward into domestic labor and other intimacies. I'm wondering if you talk about some of those photographs, especially the ones that are like, are quite erotic, right? The, the shower photographs, um, the, the bunk bed photographs with the men kind of, intimately near each other but also actively creating distance right and maybe if you take one or two of the photographs that you enjoy the most or that you like talking about the most and and to to break them down for us
0: yeah um so I'll talk about uh, my friend the Mexican Adonis the gentleman that is naked in the shower because I didn't know what else to call him but I felt that he deserved some kind of acknowledgement of the beauty and aestheticization of his that really happens in the photograph, right, the, through the body, through hard labor, but also his isolation. And for me, those particular images raise the question of consent, which I, I don't know if he consented or not. But for whatever reason, Nadal felt empowered and, and felt such photographs appropriate. Um, and there's different angles, right? And in the different angles, the light and shadow falls on the body and the musculature differently. And my question is, and this is what drives the analysis, the physical proximity, the lighting, the attentiveness to the form of the body is a highly erotic enterprise as a photographer, right? You have to see something in a particular way to take a picture in a particular way. And so for me, those those sequences of the shower and the gentleman in the pictures really say a lot about Nadell. I actually think they say more about Nadell as a photographer, which makes me wonder if, if he is queer too. And that's why that section of the book is called homoerotics because we get an aestheticization of the body in a way that hearkens to the history of the bathhouse as a queer space of mingling and sexual practice, but also a space of looking of relations of sociality of fleeting encounters, sexual or emotional or social. And that's what I think that photo sequence does. Is it tells us as much about Nadelle as it does about bracero physicality, the way that manual labor shapes and informs a body and makes that body desirable, which is ultimately what I think the expression is there is that there the photographer develops an attachment, which is why there's more than one image there's multiple and then the question becomes why does he focus on that one man i don't have the answer to it but i think that that's a kind of um historical lesson and thinking about emotion and why we do the things that we do right
1: yeah on page on page 223 you write um you know the absence of normative masculine and feminine contexts or scenarios in the mexican adonis photographs generates a text of homosexual potentiality through historical evacuation. The evacuation of historical specificity sutures multiple temporalities, the enactment of homoerotic desires as sexual practice, capitalist structures of labor, the simple bodily pleasures of showering after a long day's work, the pre-modernity given the squalid, underdeveloped, and dimly lit shower conditions, and the racialized, gendered Mexican body that inhabits that space and i think that is such like i i felt so deeply that that series of 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 lines really solidifies what you're trying to get at especially like the homosexual potentiality through historical evacuation um and Adele's perspective of the mexican adonis um but as you sort of end the the, the second part of the book um you end with passionate violence and thefts um, thinking about um, how race and class are being and, and gender are being played out, right? And a queer reading of the accounts um, of different either break-ins of of the labor camp or stabbings. I'm curious if you can recount why was this the final chapter of this section?
0: Well, I think it gets at this question of what happens when intensity of emotion goes in the other direction, right? So the first half is about, right? Love of country, romantic love, or hatred and misogyny, right? And then the second half is also about intensive attachment and emotion through the visual realm. But when we're talking about um, the the two men breaking in uh, in, in Monterey, which is, you know, an upper class area on the peninsula adjacent to Salinas or the stabbing of, um, Jose in Watsonville, California in the strawberry fields. Um, we see that when people are limited by their conditions, whether it's through segregation and racism, manual labor, and also intensive homosocial relationships that could also potentially be homoerotic and homosexual. um, We get other expressions, expressions of intensity. And that other end of the spectrum is violence. Um, And so I thought it would be unfair to just end the book talking about pleasures and attachments and homosociality, because the flip side of pleasure is pain and pain is expressed through violence it's enacted through violence and so i thought that we couldn't talk about sort of soft and fragile um expressive emotive uh embodied masculinities without so without also talking about the other extreme which is expressing those similar kinds of intense emotions through violence
1: yeah, I, I think it, it sums up so well the the second part, because as you write on page 284, you say, right, from the images and the the the, the stories that have been told in the second part, um, we can trace the makings of shifting gender and sexual ideologies in diaspora instead of compulsive heteronormativity of state policy as represented in the scholarship and photographs, right? You argue that settles really create an alternative modernity in spite of racial capitalist milieu, right, the negated... That has negated Bracero's subjecthood. And at the very end, you, you say their return, right? The, the Bracettos return of Nadell's gaze indicates that the Bracero archive is one of self-cultivation, desire, and long-standing relationship that was interactive. And I think that is so important to to think about think beyond popular or rather common narratives of Bracetto's as as suffering and as um as simply like in this migration pattern. But, but Nicole, we are running out of time. This, this is amazing. And there's so much more to talk about. Uh, and you actually have some more talks and things coming up. So I hope folks will plug into those and listen to more about the book because it's, it's fantastic. And Nicole, thank you so much for explaining to us how you came to write and detailing to us um, different moments of archiving Mexican, Mexican masculinities in diaspora. I have one more question, which is pretty common here on New Books Network, which is, what are you working on now?
0: I'm working on a book about um, domestic violence, murder, and suicide uh, in Latinx communities between 1880 and 1917. And the reason why I'm doing this is because historically my work has been about what happens when violence is enacted against minoritarian subjects by the state. I'm flipping the question, which is what happens when we express violence um, and practice violence against those we, we love? Um, and the re- and I call it, it's about intimate partner violence. I call it IPV because I, intimate partner violence is a crime, but that it often gets rationalized away because of the intimate ties. And so I have case studies from Cubans in New York, Puerto Ricans in Connecticut, uh, Cubans in Florida, Mexican origin people, California, Texas, Arizona, um, Puerto Rican and Mexican folks in Chicago um, as a way to illustrate these points. And I picked the 1880 to 1917 year because it's at the peak of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, heading into the economic crash of 1893 and then ending with World War I. In the middle, we have the Spanish-American War of 1898. We have the Mexican Revolution from 1910 to 1917. So we have mass Latinx migration from the Caribbean and from Latin America into the United States at the same time that Europeans are pouring into the United States. And so it's a period of tremendous political and social upheaval. And I'm trying to make a uh, argument about the relationship between intimate partner violence and racial capitalism. I haven't quite fleshed it out yet, but um, I'm really excited about this project. It's going to take me a while because it's my first pan-Latinx project, but I'm looking, I'm I'm really enjoying the research that I'm doing.
1: Yeah, thank, thank you so much. And as someone who has read both of your books in detail, thank you for writing uh, and taking on the task of writing about incredibly difficult things difficult moments in history and 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 ideas and people and and everything difficult so thank you um but we are out of time today nicole thank you so much for being on the show with us and i really enjoy it and please take care
0: yes thank you so much this has been a wonderful opportunity i appreciate your work
1: thank you thank you have a good day
0: you too